That sounded very good. Good morning. Uh, I want to thank everyone for your prayers for my sister and her mother-in-law, her husband's mother, who both have coronavirus. I think my sister's doing fine. Um, her mother-in-law does have some other health issues. It sounds like she's also on the upswing, though, so thankful for that. And uh, again, appreciate your prayers. Second thing I want to, to address, bed clothes? I've never heard that term in my lifetime. It's funny because this morning I was talking to Carrie about when we lived in Minnesota because they have such strong accents, especially the farther north you go, and they have different terms that are almost unrecognizable to the English speaker. And I've always said that, you know, it's, I'm happy to be back in a place where, where we speak English. And uh, that clothes. You can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6, by the way. Also, I wanted to mention uh, there is the announcement on our bulletin for the, uh, the event called The Return. And yeah, that's two weeks from yesterday. So it's two Saturdays, uh, September 26th. And it is kind of a, a prayer event. It is in Washington, D.C., but it's also going to be broadcast online. So my idea wasn't for us to all go to Washington, D.C., but if anybody wanted to... Uh, have a local watch party and, and watch the event and pray and pray for our nation um, that that could be a, uh, a great thing to be part of. And uh, so yeah, if you're interested, please let me know and uh, we'll, we'll go from there. John chapter 6, we'll be looking at verses 60 to 71 today. We're just flying through John. It's only taken us a year to get to this point. Um, at the beginning of this year, I actually kind of made like an idea of where I wanted to, to go with preaching for 2020. And once upon a time, it was actually my plan to be in this passage the week before Easter. And uh, it's not COVID's fault. It just didn't happen that way. But John chapter 6, verses 60 to 71. When many of his disciples heard it, they said... This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, 
We are but frail and finite and fallen people, but we come to you as the infinite, glorious, and righteous Lord. You are our hope, our strength, our shield. We rejoice that we can come to you and worship. You are the Almighty. You can do all things and you work all things according to the counsel of your will. May we marvel at your greatness and praise you for the grace of your gospel, which you make available through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for our continued sanctification as your people and as your church. We pray that your gospel be clearly proclaimed this morning. We pray for everyone here that we would trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Lord God, may we follow your perfect will. May we be your disciples who make disciples. May our lives and our words make you known to others. Lord, we pray that you would use us to be your hands and feet in the world. Lord, may our hope be in the gospel and not in ourselves, our strength, our talents, our resources, our possessions, our families, our spouses, our jobs. May it be in you and you alone. Lord, we continue to pray that through unrest and disagreement and strife, through politics and uncertainty, through the struggles with this pandemic, we pray for revival in our nation and for a season of gospel fruit. Lord, we pray that you prepare the fields for harvest and that your church can reap a harvest of disciples to Christ. May we pray for that and be part of that. Lord, we pray for our time in your word. May we again be challenged and encouraged by truths of your most sacred scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. What's popular isn't always good. I think of some of the mega churches throughout America. It's easy to think that they've figured it out, like they really must be doing something right. But they're often really just appealing to worldliness. It's not rocket science. Large churches have figured out that if you preach a motivational, self-help message that focuses on prosperity themes of God wanting to bless you because you're good without ever really doing any deep digging into the passage or theology while downplaying sin, they've figured out that people are drawn to high production value and catchy music. They've figured out that people will tolerate a theologically shallow church as long as the youth programs are good. Yes, there are certainly some very large churches that are very good, but they're the exception, not the rule. What's popular isn't always good. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul warns Timothy. He says, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. It's not just megachurches. It's a whole Christian segment of our culture. We see these best-selling Christian books which often display a similar theological shallowness. It's easy to get on board with those things. There's no risk to it. It asks very little of you. You can take or leave biblical ideas based on preferences and what you like. But Jesus did not preach an easy listening message. He did not come to pander. He did not come into the world as a people pleaser. He came into the world and taught repentance. And he taught that life is found in him. 
And the things that he said in our passage from last week were not easy to accept. And so in this week's passage, as we finish up chapter 6, we'll see the response to Jesus' teaching. And in this passage, we'll see the response from three groups to Jesus. Now, briefly, to give a reminder of last week. Last week, we were talking about Jesus teaching that he himself is the bread of life. And the point was that Jesus is the true bread from God who has come from heaven. And it is through consuming the bread that Jesus provides that humanity can have eternal life. The passage also talks about faith and believing in Jesus, which becomes synonymous with consuming the bread that Jesus provides. While earthly bread feeds the body, Jesus is the heavenly bread of life who feeds the greatest need of the human soul, our need for salvation and a savior. And with that, we come to a closing section of John chapter 6. And I said we'll be looking at three groups. The first of the three groups are false disciples. Verse 60, still in the aftermath of everything that Jesus has said about the bread of life. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now, the word disciples is used here. The Greek word for disciple is methetes, which refers to a student or pupil or adherent. We tend to have a lot of theological baggage with the word disciple. But when it says disciples in this verse, it's not referring to the twelve, but to the larger audience of people who have come to hear Jesus and follow him. But these disciples say that this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? What? Is the hard saying. There are several aspects to what Jesus communicated which would have been challenging to their sensibilities. Again, very briefly, Jesus has said that eternal life comes through him. Jesus said that his flesh is true food and his blood is true drink. And he also said that a person must eat his flesh and drink his blood. Jesus has multiple times in the last section rebuked the crowd which might not have been well-received. Jesus cut against the grain of their own expectations for the Messiah, which could have driven some people away. Jesus made divine claims in continually talking of himself as the one who came from heaven and also of his claims that he is greater than Moses. And so when they say that it's a hard saying, after hearing everything that Jesus has said, they're not saying that the words themselves are so difficult, but that his teaching is hard to accept. The crowd has acknowledged the difficulty of Jesus' teaching, and Jesus responds in verse 61. He says, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Another challenging statement. I think that D.A. Carson's explanation of these verses is helpful. That there are two interpretations for what Jesus is saying. One is, if you think what I'm saying is hard, if you think it's hard to accept, how will you begin to accept the resurrection when that happens? 
And the other interpretation of this is that Jesus is saying the opposite. That his teachings might be hard to accept, but seeing the risen Christ will actually make it easier to believe in him. So which view is correct? I think it actually might depend on the person. I think for this group to whom Jesus is speaking, it's the first interpretation. That they're not convinced in the authenticity of who Jesus is after hearing his teaching, explaining his ministry, seeing his signs, and that nothing will convince them. If his teachings are so confounding to this group, to an even greater degree, his crucifixion will be. And indeed, the cross is difficult. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 and 19 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Paul will go on to say a few verses later in 1 Corinthians 1, 23. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. The idea of the cross is crazy in the eyes of the world. The idea that a dead man can live again is crazy. And the idea that humanity would need Jesus to die for us in the eyes of the world is equally absurd. And for the crowd to whom Jesus is speaking, if they can't handle his teachings, they will struggle all the more with his resurrection, which is far more radical, far more scandalous, far more unfathomable, and far more unpredictable. But again, I take that phrase to go both ways, that it's also referring to the resurrection as the supreme faith builder for those who follow Jesus. That idea we'll return to at the end. With either interpretation, when Jesus talks of himself as the Son of Man ascending, I take the ascension to also have a double meaning. I think it's referring both to Jesus ascending in the sense of being lifted up on the cross when he was crucified. A similar idea is found in John 3.14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And I also take Jesus' talk of ascension to refer to when he ascended to heaven after he died and rose. As he says in our passage, the Son of Man ascending to where he was before. Jesus came from heaven. And that is a truly unique thing that Jesus can claim compared to other religious figures. Not only that Jesus would be in heaven, but that he had also come from heaven. As the opening of the Gospel of John tells us, Jesus was in the beginning and, in fact, was with God and was God. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus is fully God and fully man and came from heaven into the world so that men could go to heaven. That points to his sovereignty, authority, and divinity. And as the passage continues, we learn more of what false discipleship looks like. Verses 63 and 64, Jesus says, It is the Spirit who gives life. 
The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Jesus has said that it is by the spirit that we are given life. That's already been established in this gospel. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said that he would baptize with the Holy Spirit in John 1.33. When Jesus talks to Nicodemus, he says in John 3, 5, and 6, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. We are regenerated, we are born again through the Spirit. In our passage, Jesus says, the flesh is no help at all. It's not a naturalistic change that happens. It's a spiritual change. In 1 Corinthians 2.12, Paul says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And I'll go on to say again in verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Life comes from the spirit and the word of Christ points to the spirit and the regeneration and new life that is offered. It's easy to accept the teaching here or there from Jesus. It's easy to accept some moral values or insights that he's given to us. It's hard to accept that a person must be born again and that his gospel allows us to become a new person spiritually. Even what Jesus has said in the previous section about being the bread of life whose flesh we must eat and blood we must drink, is heavily spiritualized language referring to what happens in salvation and what those elements point to. And the words of Christ themselves point to eternal life. Jesus points out that there are people in this group, in this group of disciples to whom he's speaking, who do not believe. Verses 64 and 65 But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Because of sinfulness and unbelief, Jesus is fully aware that there would be many who would reject him. And we see the response of the crowd in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turn back and no longer walk with him. They walk away. Just as people today can be drawn to various aspects of Christianity or religion, there are also those who turn away from the gospel because they don't like its teachings or demands or exclusivity or savior. This group turns away. Not because Jesus lacks grace or because he's not forgiving, but because they don't like what Jesus has to say. But what's popular isn't always right. The false disciple can go one of two ways. Either they will walk away from Christ because they don't accept the truth of Christ, 
who he is, what he did, and why he came. Or the false disciple will continue to seek out churches and pastors and teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. To remind us again of 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. Having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will wander away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We should not be reading the Bible to make it say what we want it to say. Make it say what fits our sensibilities. We should be reading it and studying it for what it says. And that's why we must all be students of the Bible and know the word of God and use that as our guide in doctrine and to consider what we believe about God, theology, and the gospel should all be looked at in the light of Scripture. We must come to Jesus for who he is. There's the famous hymn, Just As I Am. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. And the point of that is that God accepts us for who we are. We need to trust Jesus for who he is. And so that's our first group, false disciples. To reference the parable of the soils where the farmer sows his seed and some lands in good soil and produces a great yield. But other seed falls among thorns or is scattered and eaten by birds or falls among poor soil. They've heard the words of Christ, but the word did not take root. And that brings us to our second point in our second group. True disciples. We've seen false disciples struggle with Jesus' teaching and walk away from Christ. True disciples receive his teachings and have reverence for Christ. This crowd has the eternal God, they have the light of the world, they have the truth in their midst, they have the one who has seen God with them, they have the one who provides living water and the bread of life, but they don't like what he has to say and so they leave. Verse 67, so Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? It's a rhetorical question. All throughout this passage, John has been pointing to the divine knowledge that Jesus has. Verse 61, Jesus is talking to the false disciples. It says, Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling. We see Jesus' knowledge again in verse 64. Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And we'll actually see it again at the end of the passage in verse 70 when Jesus refers to Judas the betrayer. Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So Jesus is clearly aware of what's going on and what these people believe. Also in verse 70, Jesus says that he has chosen the 12 disciples. And so when he asks them if they also want to go, he knows that they're not going to leave him. He knows exactly what will happen. He doesn't ask them in the sense of being insecure or needy or uncertain. Uncertain. It's more like a challenge. Are you with me? 
And as is characteristic, when the, gospel, when the disciples are asked questions in the Gospels, Peter responds. When the disciples are together as a group, it's generally Peter who speaks, speaks up and answers on behalf of the group. Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Responds in faith. The disciples never have a perfectly worked out theology in the Gospels. They still have much to learn about Jesus at this point. Really, it's interesting, even the wording that Peter uses. He uses the phrase, the Holy One of God. I think even that kind of speaks to Peter's lack of theological wherewithal. The phrase Holy One of God is not in the Old Testament. And the only other time it's used in the New Testament is a demon-possessed man addressing Jesus as that. So that's not really a commonly given divine title. Nevertheless, it's true. Jesus is the Holy One of God. For Peter and the other disciples, they're still learning who Jesus is. But they're following him. And that's how the entire Christian life goes. We never master it or have it all figured out. We too become followers of Christ. Peter responds in faith and makes three affirmations. We'll talk about those briefly. First, Jesus is the one, the only one, to whom we can go who has the words of eternal life. Something that we have seen again and again throughout this gospel. And in fact, that's why John wrote this gospel. The thesis statement of the entire gospel of John is found in John chapter 20, verse 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus is the Savior of the world. He is the Christ. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is the Word who became flesh. And it is in Christ and Christ alone through whom we have the promise and assurance of eternal life. Second, Peter speaks of belief in Jesus. He says, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. They see the truth in who Jesus is. They believe in Jesus, who he is, and the message that he came to bring into the world. Third, Peter affirms the identity of Jesus. Again, with the title, Holy One of God, while it's not common in the Bible, it's still true. Jesus is God on earth, in whom we have the promise of eternal life through faith in him. He has been sent by the Father. He is perfectly holy and righteous. But what do you believe? Which group are you in? Are you with the crowd who walked away, that couldn't get on board with his teachings, his ministry, and his gospel? Or are you with the true disciples who know that Jesus has the word of eternal life and that he is the Holy One of God? That is the most important thing a person can know. 
So we've seen true disciples and false disciples. And now we see the third kind of person, a fake disciple. The first group left Jesus. The second group is the 12 who stay with Jesus. But the passage concludes in verses 70 and 71. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. Judas will certainly be important later in this gospel, but here he is introduced by name. He's already been alluded to in verse 64 when Jesus was speaking of his divine foreknowledge. Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who would not believe and who it was who would betray him. And the passage ends by telling us that it would be Judas who would betray Jesus. In that, we see the sovereignty of God's plan. It was no surprise in the divine plan that Jesus was betrayed. In fact, it was part of the divine plan. We talked about perseverance and eternal security a few weeks ago. The Bible is clear that a person cannot lose salvation. Judas was not saved and then lost it. It's that he was never saved to begin with. Just because someone is around church does not mean that they're walking with the Lord, serving the Lord, or that they truly know the Lord. And Judas isn't the only example in the Bible of a person who pretends to be faithful, but is actually just a predator out for his personal gain. 1 John 4.1 warns us about false prophets. It says, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Or again, Matthew 7 talks about wolves in sheep's clothing. People who pretend to serve Christ, but are doing just the opposite. Matthew 7, 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Again, just being in the church is not our salvation. Matthew 24, 11, Jesus says, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Sometimes it's people who exploit the church and prey upon the church. I see some of these high-profile scandals that happen in other churches and denominations. These horrible abuses of power and falls from grace. And it is struggle sometimes to wonder if that person ever really knew the Lord to begin with. Certainly that's ultimately for God to know and to decide. But what the Bible does teach is that there are people in churches who wish to bring harm and seek their own personal gain. And Judas would go to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. With Judas, a person can be in the inner circle of Christ, one of the twelve, and not truly be saved. 
Just because a person is baptized, just because a person has prayed the sinner's prayer, just because a person goes to church every week, just because a person knows the Bible, that is not our salvation. Jesus said in verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That is where salvation is found. That is where our hope is found. No matter how close to Jesus someone is, there is no hope of eternal life without faith. The fake disciple might speak the right church language and go through the motions, but he or she does not actually believe in Jesus. The true disciple, the false disciple, and the fake disciple. I'm reminded of a verse earlier in this passage when Jesus was talking. In verses 61 into 62, Jesus had said to the, to the entire group when he had everyone with him, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? He was challenging them with how they would respond to the cross. Again, for many, the cross is foolishness. For many, the cross is a stumbling block. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. To those who believe in Jesus, it is the place of greatest victory. The place where Jesus said, it is finished. The place where sin was defeated. What is your response? Hebrews 12, 2 points to Christ's death on the cross. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What type of disciple are you? Again, the world wants us to rely on works. The world wants us to rely on ourselves and our own goodness. The Bible says we cannot. Paul writes in Galatians 6.4, Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We look to Jesus as our Holy One of God. We believe in Him and the death that He died to sin and the life to which He was raised and in the eternal life that He invites all who believe in Him into to the glory of God. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do praise you for your Son. Lord, may we be his disciples. May we walk in faith. And for anybody in here today who doesn't know Jesus, Lord, I pray for renewal, for the gospel, to believe and to trust in that as the only hope for life and salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.